The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you that you are the one that we can run to, and Lord, that you receive all who come to you. So Lord, as we open up your word and, and look at Second Chronicles and look at the life of Jehoshaphat, Father, would you use this to help us to see um, something of, of who you are, help give us a picture of the ideal king that we long for, but Lord, uh, most of all, would you see that you are one that we can come to in the complexity of our lives? So, Lord, would you be, be with us this morning? Would you reign over our time? Um, Lord, would you use Lord, these just small and meager words that I have here before me to penetrate our hearts, Lord? So Lord, do this in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, many of us have seen a lot of smoke in the valley. <laughs> you, you heard it on Gary's voice. Uh, I brought some water up just in case uh, as we consume this nastiness. But all, all the smoke in the valley has had me thinking about fire and the, the concept of fire. Um, we recently went camping for a couple nights uh, a few weekends ago up Little Cottonwood Canyon. And one of the joys and highlights of, of camping is the time when it gets dark and you can spend you know, time sitting around the campfire. Um, well, this was threatened because, as you guys know, we've had a super dry summer, and, and at that time, too, smoke was covering the valley, so we didn't know if we were going to have a fire, but we found out we could as long as it was, it was inside the fire pit. We, we could enjoy that. And so as we got up there, and, and as we think about fire, just in what it does for us, we see that fire, it provides warmth. It provides a degree of entertainment. It's, it's a source for our nourishment as we can cook things over it, and in the camping setting, we can enjoy, enjoy uh, s'mores. Um, but fire is both a common grace and a threat. It's an incredible power that can be harnessed and stewarded for good, but it can also be a destructive force when it's disregarded and abused. And we see that. That's, that's why the smoke is in our valley right now. We see the destruction that it causes in, in many fires across California, Oregon, surrounding here. But as, as we went camping and we had a bunch of kids running around, it, it got me thinking about some of the concepts of fire stewardship. And, and we can think about fire stewardship in, in a, a couple of different ways. Um, so fire stewardship 101 is this. Basically, the goal is to keep fire within its proper boundaries. That's why we make fire pits, right? That's why most camp campsites have a concrete structure or if you're out in the woods, you see rocks around. Also, a fire stewardship is that we want to remove brush from near the pit so that it doesn't catch fire. Um, and we, we've all grown up with Smoky Bear ringing in our ears, ears. Only you can prevent forest fires, right? So there, there's a degree of responsibility when we utilize fire. But there, as we think about this, there's, there's a couple different ways that we can disregard or disrespect the power of fire. And the first of this is an active disregard. And so you're all probably familiar with this as we actively disregard the wisdom of fire safety. It's, it's the kid who has the stick in the fire and then pulls it out and runs all around the campsite. And you're like, no, don't do that. Active disregard is, is the kind of person that takes the whole tree and then sticks it into the fire and feeds it slowly, and that the fire could <laughs> escape the pit in that boundary. Active disregard um, is not caring for the environment, you know, if there's things that could catch fire. And so we, as we have fire, we need to be actively engaged to eliminate some of the threats and, and follow some of the rules, <laughs> just the common rules that the fire has. So on top of an active disregard, there's also a, a passive disregard that could be a danger here. And this is passively neglecting some of the known wisdom of fire safety. So th this is more, you see, in the idea of, of the person that leaves the fire behind. He leaves some coals, something smoldering. 
and doesn't think that he needs to put it out, right? And conventional wisdom says you pour water on it, you stir it around, you make sure that the fire's out. A passive disregard would be to just walk away, seeming, thinking that there's no threat, but unaware of the possible consequence and destruction that could come if that gets out of its boundary. So both forms of both active and passive disregard for fire, they're both equally dangerous, and they can both have catastrophic end results there. So we're going to be looking at the life of a king who actively regarded the law of God. So he, he was careful to follow the rules in many respects, but he passively disregarded the threat of the small flame, the spark that remained. So though in the, in the grand scheme of things, his kingdom wasn't summarized by act of disobedience or idolatry, he actually had a very successful reign, but it was his passive disregard that became a danger for the kingdom. So last week we considered the life of Solomon, and this week we're going to move on and look at the life of King Jehoshaphat. And we're going to look at it through the account of Second Chronicles chapter 17 through 20. So similar to last week, we're covering a decent amount of, of, of terrain here, and so a good portion of this is going to be just biographical, kind of walking through the story of the text and, and what's there. So to begin with, we're going to look at the life and reign of Jehoshaphat, and then we're going to take a close look at two narratives that he's involved in that tell us something of his heart. And then after that, we'll make a couple uh, observations and, and lessons and applications that we can take away from this. So as we left off with Solomon last week, Solomon, uh, his idolatry in the later years of his life resulted in the downfall and division of the kingdom. So the kingdom was split into two, and there were the northern ten, ten tribes split, and were under a different king and reign. And then Judah, the southern tribe, remained, remained its own kingdom. And in this, uh, there's, there's a division where God intended unity, and there's a division here. So following Solomon, there were some two super terrible kings who reigned in both the nations, and they did what was evil in the eyes of God. And this was the case in Judah until King Asa came, came along. And King Asa, he is who will be Jehoshaphat's father. Asa reigned as king in Israel for 41 years, so it's a long reign, and he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And just a quick resume, if you were to go read it, of some of the things uh, connected to his reign is he, he removed foreign altars. He removed the high places. He broke down idolatrous pillars and ashram. So he confronted idolatry head on. He also commanded Judah to seek the Lord. He sought to keep the commands, laws and commands. He defended the kingdom from a very threatening attack from an Ethiopian king. And this king came with one million men and 300 chariots but Asa cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him and delivered Judah. And because Asa sought the Lord, the kingdom had great rest under him, similar to the rest that we saw with Solomon. Also within Asa's rule, there was a covenant renewal, and, and there was what seemed like at the beginning an attempt to reunite Israel and Judah as he was able to gather the people from Judah, but also uh, people from Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Simeon, they came to him, and it, and it said this, it says, for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord, his God, was with, was with him. Excuse me. So we see that there's some hope and some promise under King Asa as he brings reform and restoration to the kingdom, and people from Israel see his leadership, see God's work, and they're flocking towards him. So though Asa brought reform to Judah, and there was much in his life that was good and right before God, the end of his life was marked by pride, as he became self-reliant rather than dependent on God. He took treasures from the temple and from the king's house in an attempt to coerce Syria to partner with them and to turn on Israel. So he, he depends on God, or he depends on other nations rather than depending on God. And then near the end of his life, he got a disease in his feet, but he did not seek the Lord in that either. He sought the help of physicians only to neglect that God is the true healer. So under Asa, the tribe of Judah had been restored in part. Um, 
but in that, the kingdom, and the kingdom was experiencing rest and, rest and peace. And so all of this brings us to King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat inherits a peaceful, restful kingdom. And so as we come to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to say this is probably not a name that's on the top 10 baby list names today. I would argue probably not even like top million. But, um, and, and so much to the, to the degree, uh, just this name cracks me up, that if someone here were to name their child Jehoshaphat, I would give you $100. <laughs> So take that up. No, your dog doesn't count. You know, he'll get, I'm sure he'll get some terrible nicknames like Hoshi or Fatty or something like that. Not a good idea. So I'm going to be saying his name a lot, but um, we'll get used to it. Jehoshaphat. So anyways, as we open our Bibles, turn to 2 Chronicles 17, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 6 here as we, and look at his life. Verse 1, Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah. And in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places in the ashram out of Judah. So as we look at the reign of Jehoshaphat, and having read kind of this introductory summary of his life, he doesn't waste any time getting to work. We see that he provides military reinforcement up on the northern border, which is an interesting detail that shows up later because it's Israel that's the northern border up there. Um, he's attributed to having great riches and honor, kind of much like Solomon. So we talked about Solomon was the goat last week, um, and Jehoshaphat's like the baby goat, you know. He's, he's going to get some greatness but not quite be as good as his, uh, as his dad or his, his great uh, great. I think great-great-grandfather. Um, and so with that, uh, he also confronts and condemns idolatry as he actively removes the high places and the ashram out of Judah. And essentially all that means is that he's removing and taking down places of worship, that people would worship other gods. So from the start, it's clear that Jehoshaphat is filling the role of a king, similar to the manner of his father Asa, and, and walking in the ways of David. And the Bible says there that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. But what is it about his life and actions that set him apart from his father Asa? Because Asa was not likened to David, but Jeho Jehoshaphat was. So what made him similar to his great-great-great-grandfather? How did he walk in the ways of his father David? And I think this is something about the uniqueness of his reform. And we see two things here um, in these passages. In, in chapter 17, uh, verses 7 through 9, we see that his priority or his reading of the law stands out. So kind of a summarized version starting in verse 7, he says, In the third year of his reign, he sent officials to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them the Levites, and with these Levites the priests. And they taught in Judah having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So not only does Jehoshaphat see the need to fortify the cities of God in Judah, but he also sees the need to fortify the souls of Judah. And he does this by sending his officials. And we hear officials just hear important. He's sending important people. This is an important task to him. And as he sends officials, he's also restoring the role and the importance of, of the Levites and the priests to fulfill some of their primary responsibilities. And their primary responsibilities are to read and to teach and to apply the law of God to the people. So while Asa was faithful to confront idolatry, Jehoshaphat is, is trying to bring them to the law of God, to his word, that that might rest and be a seed in their hearts and their lives. 
And so Jehoshaphat puts the word of God front and center before the people of Judah. And the law of God, it's given to help God's people remember who God is, what he's done for them in the past, but also to remember his promises for them in the future. And if they heed his word, if they pay attention to it, they will flourish. But if they don't, they will suffer and they will toil. So he prioritizes the reading and the teaching of the law. The second thing that's unique about Jehoshaphat's reform is that we see something about righteous judgment and leadership. So if you were to flip over to chapter 19, I'll just pick up in verses, verse 5 here is a summary for what he's doing. But he says, Jehoshaphat, he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat in Jerusalem. So as as we look at this, we see that uh, he seeks to raise up others who are equipped to interpret the law and to execute justice. So it's not enough that someone just hear the law of God But it's equally important that the law of God be upheld in society and that there are just consequences applied to those who who violate the law. So Jehoshaphat, he recognized the need for a just kingdom, and he knew that it started with righteous leaders who could interpret and apply the law of God faithfully, fearing God more than man. Jehoshaphat, he did very well to see that the law of God was, one, known by the people of Judah, but then also to see that the law of God was upheld, that righteousness and justice reigned through the land. And so it's because of his faithfulness to the law, of him appointing leaders and executing justice, that we see this net result um, is summarized in 1710, and it says, And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. So under his reign, God was blessing the nation. He was granting them rest. He was securing their future. And though the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, much like he was with David, this doesn't mean that uh, Jehoshaphat's life was, was just peachy. <laughs> In fact, we go on and we want to consider two narratives that reveal the commendable yet complex heart of Jehoshaphat. So we're going to look at two narratives. The first of them here is going to be in chapter 18, where we see that Jehoshaphat makes an alliance with Ahab. So as we come to this part of the story, there's a lot of background to the man of Ahab that would have been common knowledge to anyone who's reading 2 Chronicles. The first and second Chronicles are written probably dated way after this history and the time that they're building or Ezra and Nehemiah are coming around to rebuild the temple. And so it's, it's a, a, a remembrance of them to look back to see what the ideal king looks like. So that, that's the context of the book of Chronicles. Um, but with that, uh, with Ahab, they would have some history. And, and we can find some of this history in 1 Kings 16 through 22. Now, we don't have time to look at the life of Ahab, which would be all, equally a very fascinating uh, study because he's not the main focus here, um, but we do need to just fill in a little bit of the background of who he is. Um, and so chapter 18 kind of sets us off on this, on this narrative here. It says, uh, verse 1, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. So the fact that the narrative is kicked off this way with a marriage alliance, and this isn't just a marriage alliance with anyone. This is a marriage alliance with Ahab. This should be a red flag. So why is this case? Why, why is this a red flag? Well, Ahab is the king of the idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel. And his tombstone inscription would have read something like this. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
So he's an evil man. And on top of this, Ahab married the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And basically, her name is Jezebel. And so these are not God-fearing people. These are other idolaters that worship uh, false gods. So he marries her. And this just brings idolatry into the line of Israel. And, and Ahab embraces it, you know, full, full wide arms. And so, in short, the combo of Ahab and Jezebel is that they are some of the more wicked and hostile characters of the Old Testament. And, and that's why there should be a major red flag here. And again, you can go read about them and their interactions with Elijah in 1 Kings. But as we step more into the story again to see what the, the author of Chronicles has for us here, we see that jo- Jehoshaphat forms a marriage and a military alignment with Ahab. And, and in, this, in the background, Syria has become a threat to both Israel and Judah. And so Ahab, he incites uh, Jehoshaphat to form an alliance with him in battle. And this is interesting because at the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign, he's securing his military border on the north. But then here, years later, we see him making peace with Ahab. We see them forming um, a marriage alliance, a military alliance. And so uh, as they go on, um, they, they come together. Uh, Je- Jehoshaphat agrees to like, go and join him in battle. And before they do that, um, Jehoshaphat, he insists that they... In- inquire first for the word of the Lord. And so this is, this is a good thing for Jehoshaphat. You know, he's not abandoning his God and just jumping on completely on Ahab's ideas here. But he's like, okay, let's, let's talk to God. Let's ask him what he thinks about this war. So Ahab gathers together 400 of his own, what I would call pet prophets, <laughs> 400 of his own prophets that come together and they, they prophesy that God will give up Syria into their hands and that they will triumph. So all four of, 400 of them are in unison on this. Well, Jehoshaphat, he's appropriately skeptical of Ahab's prophets. And so he asks, is there yet another prophet around here that we can ask, that we can seek? And so Ahab mentions that there's a prophet by the name of Micaiah. And as he mentions this name, he very quickly qualifies his suggestion. And as I read this, it's, it's what I imagine in the tone of a five-year-old that, that Ahab would say this. He says of Micaiah, he says, But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. So Ahab doesn't want to bring in this other prophet because he only speaks evil against him. So in short, Je- Jehoshaphat essentially just says, not in these words. You're being ridiculous. Stop being a baby. Let's, let's just go talk to him. So they end up calling for Micaiah. And so a messenger goes to get Micaiah and preempts him to go along with the other prophets. Um, he, he, he says all the other prophets have said, you know, it's favorable to go. And so he's like trying to get him to say, yeah, come along with this and don't, don't mess this up, right? But like a faithful prophet, Micaiah responds, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. So Micaiah represents a challenge and a problem to Ahab and his plans here. So upon arriving, they ask him, what should we do? Should we go out to battle? And so, interesting, the first thing he says to them, he actually agrees with them. He says, go up and triumph, and they will be given into your hand. But because Ahab was already so skeptical of Micaiah, he calls him out in his five-year-old voice saying, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Micaiah gives him the answer he wants. It's not good enough. Ahab says, no, you need to speak the truth to me. And then, and then he tells him what he's expecting to hear, that God is against his plans. So after being prodded by Ahab, Micaiah goes on to prophesy that Israel will be like sheep scattered on the mountain, that they'll be like sheep without a shepherd, and that they should not go to war and return home. And so to this, like, you you can just see Ahab looking at, you know, Jehoshaphat saying, I told you so. He only speaks evil, you know, to me. And and I just anticipated, you know, Jehoshaphat eye roll there. It's like, okay, come on. 
But then with interesting detail and clarity, the prophet Micaiah, he goes on to reveal how he received this word from God. And he describes a scene before the throne of God and the whole host of heaven surrounding him. And so in this scene, God makes it clear that it's his intention to trick Ahab to go into war. And that Ahab going to war is going to be his end, his destruction. So in the end, uh, Micaiah speaks and does everything as it came from the Lord. And after he explains all of this, Ahab is furious with him. He's angry, and he sends the prophet to prison, <laughs> puts him in jail with meager rations, and, and says, basically, I'm, I'm not, you're not coming out until we come back safely. <laughs> and you, you prove yourself wrong. And so with this, against the counsel of Micaiah, Ahab and Joseph still go to war. Now, pause here for a second. This this is interesting. So, Micaiah, who Jehoshaphat's asking about, says, don't go to war. This is not going to end well. Jehoshaphat seeks him for that advice, but then seemingly next, both Ahab and and him still go to war. There's not a question of this. So, this is kind of a mark on Jehoshaphat. Like, what's, what's going on in his mind? Well, as the story goes on, we see that Ahab is actually kind of freaked out, and so he decides to disguise himself as he goes into the battle. And, and you know, like a, like a good friend, he's like, How about, hey, Jehoshaphat, you wear your robes, and you show yourself to be the king, and I'm going to disguise myself so, you know, they can come and kill you and not kill me. And, and so as they go to battle, Jehoshaphat just, you know, I, again, I don't know what's going on in his mind, seemingly goes along with this, is fine with it. So as they go to war, it's Syria's primary goal. They say, they say our primary goal is to kill Ahab. That, that's our goal. We don't, want, we don't want to mess anything lesser. We want to kill Ahab. And so in this, as the battle begins, they see Jehoshaphat in his robes, and they presume him to be Ahab. So they zero in on him and start pursuing him. And as they pursue him, and Jehoshaphat feels this, he cries out to God, and God helped him. In God's providential direction, the Syrians recognize that he is not Ahab, and they turn away. So, so though Jehoshaphat is foolish here, he still cries out to God, and God delivers him. God spares him. But then the craziest of things happens here, and I'm going to just read this directly from 1833. This is crazy. It says, But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around, carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset he died. Random dude. <laughs> Doesn't even tell us which side, which side he fights for. Random dude. Random shot. Pulls out his bow. Flings across the battlefield and comes and pierces Ahab, what we presume to be between the breastplate and his armor. And it proves to be fatal. We see who God is for and who God is against here. And what's random is actually not so random in the eyes and the plan of God. So that, that's the end of the story here. So this is a crazy story with like so many things here that prompt so many questions, but I only want to highlight a a couple things. And and what do we think about the story in relationship to who Jehoshaphat is? And first thing we want to notice is that Jehoshaphat is a fool. He's a fool for his alliance with Ahab. He's a fool for going along with his ridiculous plans. He's a fool for seemingly ignoring the prophecy that Micaiah gave to them about going to war. So in one sense, like, here's, here's a man that is just foolish. But in another sense, we, we still see the heart of Jehoshaphat. And we see that God is for him. Jehoshaphat, he calls out to God amidst war, and God delivers him. He has not denied God. He's just simply put himself in a dumb situation, and yet God preserves him as he calls upon his name. And then in this, we see that Jehoshaphat is actually the means that God uses 
to end the terrible reign of Ahab. He's the one who initiates to inquire of the Lord and to bring this prophecy and then to bring it to reality. God uses Jehoshaphat as, as, as the means to do that. And so the conclusion of this narrative, it's book-ended with a summarizing comment regarding the commendable yet complex heart of Jehoshaphat. And you see this in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 1. So 19, 1, he says this, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashtaroth uh, out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat's association with Ahab in both his marriage and military alliances it's called out by Jehu the seer, who is essentially a prophet. And we see that he calls out his association with evil, that he helps and loves the wicked, and that that's going to result in wrath from God. There's going to be a consequence for that sin, for him dealing with wickedness. But at the same time, too, it's, it's, it's mixed. He says he recognizes the soft heart that Jehoshaphat has before God. And that his heart is set to seek God and to remove idolatrous worship in their own land. So Jehoshaphat is both commendable and foolish. He's human. He's complex. So it's with that we see the first narrative, something about who Jehoshaphat is. Now we'll t turn to the second narrative here. And, th and this picks up in uh, chapter 20. And here we see the consequences of, uh, of Jehoshaphat's sin, and we see the wrath of God against him through the nations of Ammon, uh, Moab, and Mount Seir. So the wrath of God comes to Je against Jehoshaphat in the form of attack from the land of Edom that includes the Moabites, the Ammonites, and people from Mount Seir. So in verse 3, he says, as he realizes that this attack is on him, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did, not, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before the house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. The human Jehoshaphat, he responds to this threat of this incoming invasion. He responds in fear. But it's not a fear that drives him to seek outside support from another nation like that of his father. It's actually a fear that drives him to seek the Lord. He fasts. He calls all of Judah to assemble and to come seek God together as a people. So if we remember last week, uh, upon Solomon's dedication of the temple, God uh, heard Solomon's prayer and promised that he would hear and forgive those who cry out to him. He would hear and forg forgive those who seek his face and come gather and pray in the temple. God has given that promise. And I presume because Jehoshaphat knows the law of God, knows the promises, knows what's been handed down, he knows if we go to the temple and as a, as a nation gather and seek God, he will deliver us. So God gives that same, 
He calls that on that same promise here that we found from Solomon, that if they cry out in their affliction, God would hear and save. So after they make this request, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon a Levite by the name of Jehaziel, and Jehaziel prophesies, and he lets them know that the battle is God's and that they have nothing to fear. And then this Levite, he provides instructions for how the battle is going to go down. And he tells them this. He gives them great security. He says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. The Lord will be with you. So God's answer through, through this Levite causes Jehoshaphat to fall down on his face and worship. And then it causes the congregation to start singing loudly, loudly and exuberantly in what God has promised and given to them. So the next morning, the people of Judah, they rise early, and they go out to the wilderness together to face their enemy, where they were given instruction to go. And once there, Jehoshaphat, he encourages Israel, and he says, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. So he calls them to believe he calls them to believe the Lord and the prophets and that their trust, that their faith will ensure their victory. And so then the whole congregation begins to sing. So in, cha- in chapter 20, verse 22, picks up, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked towards the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. What a crazy event. Again, to be before the temple, to call upon God. God speaks through a man what's going to happen. And then in faith, you walk out into the wilderness and come over a hill and see that he has delivered everyone. What happened there? (laughs) Sounds pretty confusing and that everyone was confused there. But God did something that they didn't even have to engage in the battle one bit. So though the wrath of God was set against Jehoshaphat for his sin... God is still gracious to hear their cry and to save his people when they call out to him. And so here we see the beauty and the complexity of Jehoshaphat's life and faith. He regularly set his heart to seek God, though it was his own folly that brought on consequences for his sin. And the author of Chronicles summarizes this event and really much much of the life of Jehoshaphat and said, And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all around. In all Jehoshaphat, he reigned for 25 years. And to add to more complexity and foolishness near the end of his life, near the end, Jehoshaphat, he joins with Ahaziah, king of Israel. This is Ahab's son, and I don't think I need to say any more about how this, <laughs> how this begins to look. But he joined in him um, in the third alliance. So we have marriage alliance, we have military alliance, and now third, third M, you like what I'm doing here? Merchant alliance. Um, he comes and forms a, a merchant alliance to go to Tarshish. And th- this is the same place that Solomon brought in tons of gold and metals and apes and like peacocks and like all these crazy things. Well, they want to set on an expedition to go to bring, accumulate this wealth. And so, again, he partners with Israel in this. He's formed another unnecessary alliance. And the Lord was not pleased with this and brought another prophet that spoke um, to Jehoshaphat, telling him that he would destroy what he made. And then God destroyed his ships. At Jehoshaphat's death... His son Jehoram, his firstborn, reigned in his place. And then things begin to go downhill 
very quickly. Upon establishing his reign, Jehoram, he kills all his brothers. He kills them with the sword, and then he kills also some of the princes of Israel. And his son Jehoram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the marriage alliance and the folly or sins of Jehoshaphat, they end up leading to the tragic corruption of the kingdom. From an external perspective, there's peace and security throughout Jehoshaphat's reign, but from an internal perspective, there proved to be a slow burn of idolatry left to fester, to grow, to consume, slowly consume. And though he started strong in the reform and he brought to the land through the reading of the law, the execution of justice, removal of idols, he did not sustain what he started. At the end of his life, he appears to have grown weary of removing the high places because they were not all removed. And somewhere in there, the people of Judah do not continue to set their hearts upon God, the God of their fathers. Jehoshaphat, he was actively obedient to seek God early in his reign and in times of trouble, but he was passively disobedient when it came to his toleration of idolatry. He violated two of our fire principles earlier. One, he became friends with the guy who doesn't respect the power of fire, and he invited him, you know, through his daughter into his home. But two, he didn't care to tend the fire. He didn't make sure that the fire stayed in its proper boundaries. He didn't exterminate it when it, did, when it left. He turned a blind eye, and unfortunately, his own house caught fire. He welcomed idolatry into his house, and didn't care to extinguish it when it was a small flame or just a spark. In the end, Jehoshaphat did right in the eyes of God, and he was commended for that. But he was also foolish in his associations. In his associations, his alliances had tragic consequences for the kingdom. Oh, the complexity of the human heart. So as we think about the life of Jehoshaphat, there, there's two lessons and applications that I, I want us to think about it um, before we wrap up here. And the first one is this, beware of the cultural battle that threatens us below the surface. So beware of the cultural battle that threatens us below the surface. Similar to Jehoshaphat, many of us have grown up and inherited a God-fearing, Christianized nation. That's not to say that America is inherently Christian, but it's to acknowledge that uh, historically the faith has been widely accepted here and it's been built into some of our cultural fabric. And on top of this, we've had many successive years of peace on the home front. And this, this peace, this era of peace, I think it allows us to lower our guard, our guard as we enjoy lifestyles, different lifestyles, hobbies, careers, luxuries that are unique to a season of affluence and peace. I think in light of this, many, many of us are aware that there is a cultural tide that's turning. And some of us are just now beginning to realize that the Christian life in the American context is going to be increasingly more difficult as the years go forward. But quite frankly, this, this tide has been building for a long time now, yet many of us, in which I wholeheartedly include myself in this, we tend to not acknowledge it as a growing threat, at least in the way that we live our lives. So for me individually, I'm, I'm not scared that this cultural uh, shift is going to shipwreck, or this cultural shift is going to shipwreck my faith. I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about that. I trust that God will provide and sustain and that my faith and foundation is secure. But because I'm not scared of that, it does leave me free to continue engaging with the culture. It leaves me free to continue engaging with the world and with discernment, of course. But I keep on listening to my country music. I keep watching my favorite sports teams and athletes. I keep playing golf, believing the lie that I can get better. 
I keep trying to build a small-scale farm in my backyard. I keep living in a peacetime mentality because that's what I'm accustomed to. That's what everyone else around me is doing. So shouldn't I join in? So in, in one sense, I hope you all relate to me here. I hope that you have confidence that God will keep you and walk with you through any trial and that there's still joy to be found in this life. That list of things is not bad, and I'll probably continue to participate in them in some form. There's joy to be found in this life, and, and there's thanksgiving to be had in a time of peace. We can give thanks to God for that and praise his name. So in one sense, I, I hope you can relate to me there. But in another sense, I hope you see the danger here. Jehoshaphat was true to God until the end of his life. The text never indicates that he became an idolater. He was faithful to God. Praise God. Amen. But where did the danger strike? It struck the next generation. He started strong but finished weak, and he made peace in the smallest of ways with an idolatrous culture. And my fear is that at times I'm doing the same thing and that some of us in this room are doing the same thing. We've made peace with an idolatrous culture. There's a cultural battle below the surface that rages on. And yes, it's after each of our hearts. True, that's true. But even more so, it's after the hearts of the next rising generation. I've said this before, but I'll say it again because for some reason it's stuck in my mind and it keeps coming back to the top. But we, we see this, this progression of beliefs in that a first generation believes something, a second generation assumes something, and then the third generation denies. So we need to ask the question, are we ensuring, are we being clear that the next generation believes now, again, we, we can't force anything. That's God's work. But we can be faithful to understand the threats and the dangers of the time. And so as fellow church members, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, we must confront and address the idolatry in our age. We can't let it rem remain hidden below the surface. We must see that the threat is real. And in light of this, we must draw near to God in trust and repentance. Let's not assume that our kids know God. Let's not assume that they see the threat as the way, in the same way that we see the threat. Let's not assume that they can be discerning all on their own. Like Jehoshaphat did on the attack from Edom, let's address the enemy by name and fear. Fear is healthy as long as it drives us to greater dependence on God. God's built us to feel fear, to tell us that something's wrong so that we find a solution. But our solution needs to be God. And in this fear, let's do as Jehoshaphat did. Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's gather as a church as Judah gathered before the temple to seek the face of God, that he might hear and forgive us for both our sins and our passive disregard of latent idols in our lives and in the life of our church. And so there's good timing with this tonight because we have a time of prayer tonight before our family gathering, our family night at 5.30. So that, that's one thing I feel convicted to pray about, that we could pray against the, the cultural enemy and the idolatries of the day, that God would preserve us and the next generation. So beware of the cultural battle that threatens us below the surface. For as long as it remains below the surface and undistinguishable, we will lose, and probably sooner than one might think. But praise be to God that he will hear our request if we come to him and deliver us. The second observation, and this one's very short, or second lesson, though we have complex hearts, God stands ready to hear and forgive all who turn to him. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have a divided heart. There's a war that wages on between your flesh and the Spirit of God. 
If you are not a Christian and you're in attendance this morning, you have an enslaved heart. You are enslaved to your passions and desires and not in surrender to the God of the universe. But here's the good news. No matter who we are or where we come from or where we stand before God, God is ready to hear and to forgive all who turn to him. If you can hear that foolish, foolish man of Jehoshaphat, he can hear any one of us. Only Christ has a pure and undivided heart. And if we let him, if we're willing to invite him into our lives, he can transform ours with his spirit as we draw near to him, giving us the heart of his heart, the heart of David. So though Jehoshaphat was under the wrath of God and suffering from the consequences of his sin, God still heard his prayer. God still had mercy on him. And some of us this morning, we're suffering. Or we're, we're keenly aware of the consequences of our own sin, maybe from years ago or recently. And though our hearts may be complex and divided and we carry unnecessary burdens, because of the work of Jesus, we can come to our Father and he will not turn away anyone who comes. He will take the burden. He will relieve you. So in a moment here, we're, we're going to repeat the song that we sang earlier, Run to the Father. And it's my hope that collectively as a church that we can run to our Father and find grace in Him. It's my hope that we can draw near to know that only He can answer the problems. Only, only He can bring comfort in our sin and our suffering. And we'd be foolish to say that we don't have a, a divided or an enslaved heart. So... And my, my prayer and hope is that we can come to God and, and run to him together as a church. So let, let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, so much relating with the humanity and complexity of Jehoshaphat, Lord. So many of us have divided hearts that, Lord, move to you in one moment, but then are so foolish and run astray in another. So, Lord, would you help us to see that you continually, arms open wide, receive all who come to you in humility and repentance. So, Lord, if there is repentance that needs to take place, Lord, would you bring that now? Lord, would you help us as a church, Lord, as individuals before, to run to you, to find hope and restoration and healing in you alone? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.